I mean, thank you very much for reading, Rory. Yeah. Um, welcome. Uh, if anyone does need a Bible, by the way, if you missed that earlier on, then uh, we do have some spare Bibles. Pop your hand in the air if you'd like a Bible. Um, what page was it on? I can't remember. You'll find it. Genesis 24, uh, near the beginning of the book. Brilliant. Um, well, let's say we, we, we started Genesis uh, about two years ago, actually, and we are, um, this is our third time coming at it. Um, so we are picking up where we left off last, last time. So we'll, we'll look back a little bit, we'll, we'll try and remember where we've got to in the story, but let me pray again um, as we come to God's Word together. Heavenly Father, what wonderful words, what powerful words. Uh, and we pray that you would help us to be engaged with what you were saying this morning. You will meet with us, we pray. Speak to our hearts, change our lives, that we might honour you more and more. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, at the beginning uh, of his um, novel, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, Dickens has this kind of wonderful opening paragraph. Very famous, I'm sure many of you will know it. Be on the screen. He writes this, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Then we thinking, look, make, make your mind up, you know, which, which is it? You know, the kind of the opposite, bouncing from one to the other. But what he's doing, if you know the story, he's describing life in London versus life in Paris. One city is calm and hopeful. The other city is in turmoil as the fervour of revolution grips the people in that city. But, but this, this kind of description, there's something timeless about it, isn't there? It, it feels like life more generally. That the world is in a state of flux. That, that we bounce from moments of optimism to, to moments of dread and, and despair. Or, or, or sometimes life feels as though it's going somewhere, that, that we're kind of making progress, that we're, we're on a trajectory, but then other times it feels completely random and directionless. It was the best of times. No, no, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. No, it was actually the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. No, it, it was the season of darkness. That there is this flux, this this uncertainty, this up and down, this volatility, but through it all, through all of that confusion, there is a thread that is being weaved, a story that is unfolding. And it is a story that has its beginnings in Genesis. So when we were last in Genesis, about a year ago, we started at chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we know the Bible, it is one of the big turning points in the story. After the catastrophic events of Genesis chapter 3, when humanity took up arms against God, the world then continued to spiral downwards. There were, there were further revolutions, further acts of rebellion and growing misery. Genesis 4 to 11 were the worst of times. They were the times of foolishness, the times of darkness and, and despair. But then in Genesis 12, the Lord steps in and he sets the world off in a different direction. He makes promises to Abraham. He says, I will bring blessing to the world instead of curse, life instead of death, light instead of darkness. He effectively promises to Abraham that he will restore creation back to its glory again. 
And so a new story begins to unfold. That through Abraham and his family, the world is going to be put right. Now Abraham responds to God's promises with faith. He and his wife Sarah, they leave their home. They move to the land God has promised them, the land of Canaan. And eventually they have a son called Isaac. And now we come to chapter 24. And this is a real moment of crisis in the story. Chapter 23, Sarah, Isaac's mum, dies. In chapter 25, Abraham, Isaac's father, will die. And so only Isaac is left. And he has no wife. Therefore he has no children. And so God's promise to restore the world through Abraham's family is now hanging on a knife edge. Will history fall back into the flux and chaos and uncertainty of chapters 4 to 11? Or will God's vision for the world, God's story for the world, continue to unfold? That, that's what this chapter it is helping us grapple with. So here we go, first point. The divine story unfolds through divine providence. Now Abraham knows that his end is coming, and so he starts his kind of succession plan. He calls his, his most loyal servant, makes him promise something there in verse 3. Abraham says, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, that will go to my country and my own relatives and, and get a wife for my son Isaac. If God's story is going to continue, Isaac needs a wife. But it can't just be anyone. You know, when God made those promises to Abraham, they were not kind of general promises about general people in a general place. No, he made specific promises to Abraham and Abraham's people about the specific place, Canaan. That, that means that Isaac's wife must be a relative of Abraham for, for those promises to be fulfilled. And not only that, Isaac's wife must be willing to travel. Have a look at verse 5. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Abraham said, Make sure that you do not take my son back there. He is not to leave Canaan. And so the challenge is set, the quest is given, the servant must find a wife for Isaac, but not just anyone. She must be a relative of Abraham, and she must be willing to travel to where Isaac is in the land of Canaan. So this is kind of a big unanswer for the servant, isn't it? You know, in a world of dating apps, these kind of requirements would have been easy to sort out. I've never been on a dating app, but nothing against them. But I'm imagining, I'm assuming, I'm guessing that you can kind of tip certain criteria that you're looking for. It'll screen people. You know, must be sporty, must be a dog lover, uh, must be someone who enjoys classical music, whatever it is. You can kind of, kind of screen people in and out. But back then, it's much harder to be that kind of picky. The, the chances of the servant finding someone who fits all of this criteria were, were very slim indeed. But of course, this, this is the Lord's story. And Abraham has come to realise, over his many, many years of trusting the Lord, that the Lord ensures that his story continues. So verse 7. The Lord God, the God of heaven, this is Abraham speaking, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land 
and who spoke to me and promised me on earth, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, so that you can get a wife for my son from there. And then it works. The angel of the Lord goes before the servant and he fixes everything. It's as if God is the ultimate matchmaker. I had a, I had a spot of matchmaking once, ended up in a complete disaster. Uh, two people ended up marrying completely other people and, and a lot of misery, a lot of tears. But when God gets about matchmaking, it works out just fine. So the servant heads off, and the first woman he meets, not only is she single, not only is she of marriageable age, better than that, when the servant asks her in verse 23, which family do you belong to? She effectively says, I am Abraham's great niece. Now, even with dating apps, even with being able to choose your criteria, it, it usually takes a few goes, I think. That, that's my, my, not my experience. It's all go people's experience of what happens. But rarely does it work with the first person you meet. But here, it's first time lucky for the servant. That's kind of the point, isn't it? It's not luck, is it? The servant realises who's behind his good fortune. And so he says, verse 26, Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The Lord has led me on this journey to the house of my master's relatives. It is the Lord's doing. The Lord went before the servant. The Lord led the servant to Rebecca. And do you know, this chapter, this account, is the single longest account in the book of Genesis. More words are given over to Isaac finding a wife than to any other single episode in the whole book. Isn't that strange? I guess on the one hand, you could say, well, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the promises are in danger. We've thought about that. They're on a knife edge. God's plan to restore the world is under threat. If Isaac can't find a wife, then it's all over. This is important. But on the other hand, there have been other threats to God's promises in Genesis. Maybe bigger than this. Two chapters back, chapter 22. Isaac's own life was threatened. But that only got 24 verses. Let's get 67. So, so why is so much time given to this fairly ordinary event? Because I think it shows not only that God is unswervingly committed to his promises, but it also shows us how often he brings them about, how the normal way it is that he brings them about through the ordinary events of everyday life. Because the thing is, as you read chapter 24, what's surprising is that there is nothing overtly supernatural about the way that Rebecca becomes Isaac's wife. The Lord didn't kind of teleport her from where she was and, and drop her outside Isaac's tent. You know, there was no vision, there was no star in the sky. Well, God's good at that, you can do stars in the sky. There was no star in the sky telling the servant where to go. It was all very ordinary. A search for a bride, an encounter at a well, watering camels. None of this is supernatural, or overtly supernatural. 
that it is all of God. The servant says in verse 27, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. He says later on in verse 48, I praise the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Abraham's great niece, that's what he's saying. God brings about his plans and purposes through the ordinary events of everyday life. Christians call this divine providence. The divine story unfolds through divine providence. Through the best of times, the worst of times, the times of hope and the times of despair, through the flux and the ordinariness of everyday life, the Lord is quietly unfolding his story. Through the rising and falling of governments, through the waxing and waning of a pandemic, through the persecution of his people, through triumph and tragedy, through times of singleness and times of marriage, through career progression and redundancy and retirement, through climate change, through justice and injustice, through economic booms and economic busts, through it all, the Lord is quietly unfolding his story. He is saving men and women from hell. He is redeeming men and women from the tyranny of Satan and sin and death as the gospel spreads. He is forming Christ in us, in his people, making us, remaking us in his image. And through us, he is showing the world an alternative kingdom. Why are we getting on with it? It may look like flux and mess and ordinariness, but the divine story is unfolding through divine providence. It's like kind of um, tapestry and uh, what's that thing that he does? The cross stitch. That's what it's like. Cross stitch. Um, if you ever look at the, the, the front of a cross stitch, it, it, or the back of a cross stitch rather, it is a real mess. There are kind of bits of cotton and whatever it is that you use to make cross stitch with all over the place. And it looks like a complete mess. Turn it around and, and it's a beautiful picture. That's what God is doing. Divine providence is bringing about the divine story, quietly getting on with it. But this divine providence doesn't mean that God's people can be passive. No, so secondly, the divine story unfolds through human action. <clears throat> now, as I said, this is the longest chapter in Genesis, but in it, that the main characters, certainly this kind of part of the Genesis story, the main characters all fade into the background. Sarah's died in the previous chapter. Abraham has a few words at the beginning, but then he's gone. And Isaac has a little walk-on part right at the end. Now, the focus is first and foremost on one person, and that's Abraham's servant. And we know nothing about him, we don't even know his name. But perhaps that is, is deliberate because maybe he is meant to be the person we are to identify with. He's the person who shows us how do you respond to divine providence. And he shows us that you respond with faithful action. Because the servant knows that God will go before him. Abraham tells him, look, don't worry, the Lord will work it out. The angel of the Lord will go before you. He knows that. And you could think, well, if that's the case, maybe I can sit back a bit here. And let it unfold. I occasionally played rugby at school. Um, 
I just don't have the character for rugby. It's a bit rough for me, if I'm going to be honest. So I very rarely played. But I had a friend whose nickname was, uh, was Bungle. Now, Bungle was named after a bear from a children's TV program. Rainbow, you remember Rainbow? Bungle, Jeffrey, George, maybe? I can't remember them all. Anyway, he was named after a bear for good reason. He was built like a house. So he was brilliant rugby as well. And if ever you ended up with Bungle on your rugby team, there was only one tactic, and that was you just get the ball to Bungle, and then you sit back and you watch the play unfold. Let Bungle sort it out. Kind of feels a bit similar here. If God is going to do it, then, then step back and let God sort it out. Don't make it in the way. But that's not what the servant does. He trusts in divine providence. But that means he acts. So he, he plans. Verse 10. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. That's important, isn't it? That the servant wants to give a good impression to those that he's meeting. Showing up with ten camels is like driving into town with ten Ferraris. It's a statement. We have wealth. We have power. All of that is done to impress the potential future wife and her family. And look where he pitches up in verse 11. He made the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was towards evening, the time the women go out to draw water. He's clever. He goes to the place where he knows single women, eligible women, are likely to be the local well. So he plans. And then he prays. Verse 12. Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. He plans and he prays. How, how, how do you respond to, to, to God's providence you don't step aside and let God do it. No, the faithful, trusting response is to plan and to pray in line with what God has said He is going to do. Now, I think that's true in our personal lives. We could talk about that. But it's true for us as a church as well. You see, we, we need to plan. Planning stops us being passive. God has called us to be active. He's called us to go and make disciples of all nations. He's called us to care for the needy in our church family and beyond. He's called us to proclaim the gospel. That's his story unfolding. That's what divine providence is doing. And so he calls us to act. We must plan. We have strategies and ideas. We look at different ministries that we could support financially. When we think about programs and events that we could set up and run, we, we plan in response to God's divine providence. But we need to pray as well. Because not only does the Lord answer our prayers, not only does he bring about his purposes through our prayers as we pray, but I think prayer protects us in a really important way. It stops us being more committed to our plans than we are to God's voice and his leading. It stops us becoming proud and self-dependent as we go about making our plans. Prayer stops our strategies and programs becoming man-centred and empire-building. Prayer stops our activity becoming activism. Just doing more and more and more for the sake of our own reputations. Prayer stops us serving ourselves instead of serving Christ. 
So we must pray. Lord God, we have all these plans, we have all these ideas, but they are wholly dependent upon you. Prosper them or not, as you see fit. So may the Lord make us, above all, a prayerful church. Yes, a planning church, but, but above all, a prayerful church. May it be our instinct as, as elders, may it be our instinct in midweek groups, our instinct in members' meetings, to turn to God in prayer. Lord, here are our ideas, here are our hopes, here are our dreams. Please prosper them or not, as you see fit. And may the glory be yours and ours. So the divine story unfolds through divine providence. But it also unfolds through human planning and praying in response to that divine providence. We need to be planning and praying as a church. But finally, Genesis 24 leaves us with a big question. Will you join the story? Now, for us, I think, to feel the weight of this account, we do need to spend a bit of time thinking about Rebecca. From the moment we meet her, there is something deeply attractive about her. Now, I don't mean just her physical appearance. We're told that she was physically beautiful. Interestingly, we're not told what that actually means. It's not as if there's a standard of physical beauty that you have to then live up to. That, that's not the point. But, but she was physically beautiful. Instead, in many ways, her beauty shines forth in her character. When she meets a stranger at the well, in need of water and in need of hope, she is open-hearted. She is generous. She is hospitable. She is industrious. But, but Rebecca isn't kind of just being portrayed here as, as some kind of ideal wife. It's much more than that. She is being portrayed as the ideal Israelite, or, or the ideal follower of God. Because the thing that makes Sarah and Rebecca stand out, if you have in mind the whole Genesis story, the thing that makes her stand out is how like Abraham she is. Almost a year ago it was when we looked at Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham meets three strangers, a bit like Rebecca met a stranger. And he didn't meet them in a well, he met them outside his house. And his response is strikingly similar to Rebecca's. He rushes around quickly, providing food and water for them and invites them home. Rebecca does the same. Well, it was very late, I haven't made you notice it, but just see how many times the word ran or quickly came up. Verse 18, she quickly lowered the jar and gave him something to drink. You know, no kind of just gradually living down. She quickly lowers the jar. Verse 20, she quickly emptied a jar into the trough. Verse 20, again, she ran back to the well and drew enough for the camels. Verse 28, she runs back home to her family. There's kind of this frenetic energy about it all. But she's like Abraham. Now, now her, her likeness to Abraham isn't just seen in her enthusiasm to show hospitality and to be generous and, and kind. Back in Genesis 12, when the Lord first approaches Abraham, he says to him, leave your father and mother, leave the country and people you know, and go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham believes God. He trusts God's promises and he gets up and he leaves. Rebecca is in exactly the same position, isn't she? 
Right from the start, Abraham made it clear to his servant, you are not to forcibly take someone to be Isaac's wife. If she doesn't want to come, then she stays. She must choose to come. And that moment of choice finally comes in verse 56. But the servant said to them, do do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I might go to my master. Laban, this is um, Rebecca's brother, said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? Now this is like a moment in those kind of rom-coms when you've got the airport scene and things have kind of soured a little bit and the guys think, well I'm just going to get on the plane and leave and just as he's getting on the plane he turns around and there's the woman smiling, waving. And then, you know, you've got the dramatic or the kind of violence thing, I don't, whatever, the music is going. And, and is he going to walk back or is he going to get on the plane? What will Rebecca do? Will she leave everything she knows, the comfort and security of her family, and go to a place she knows nothing about, to be with a man she's never met? Will she go? Actually, you could put this slightly differently. She's heard the servant talk about the Lord and his promises. She's seen the blessings the Lord has brought Abraham and his family. She's heard about the Lord's plan to restore the world through Abraham's family. Will she go? Will she be part of the story? Does she trust the Lord? And her response is the same as Abraham's back in Genesis 12. I will go. It's a remarkable response, isn't it? I'm sure that the camels and the bracelets and the jewellery helped, but still, what little she knew of God's plans to bless the world through Abraham, she believed. And here's the thing, that question flies off of the page to us. We've seen the divine story unfold through divine providence. We've seen that the divine story unfolds through human planning and praying. And the question is, will you be like Rebecca? Will you become part of the story? And you're not a Christian, that this is where it starts for you. Will you go? Will you choose to make Christ the priority of your life? Will you go? Now, most of us have been Christians for many years. We, we've joined the story. We've left everything behind to follow Christ. But I think this question still needs answering. Because in the flux and change of life, in the best of times and the worst of times, in sickness and in health, in triumph and in defeat, we are constantly being asked this question. Will you go? Will you follow Christ? Today, when you feel the tide of culture turning against Christ and his teachings, will you go? Will you follow him? Tomorrow, when you see that following Christ means denying yourself, it means choosing obedience to Christ instead of self-gratification, will you go? Next week, when you hear the demands of Christ to forgive those who've hurt you, to bear with those who rile you, to say the hard things to those who are in error, will you go? Will you follow Christ? And every time we say yes, every time we say, I will be part of the story, I will follow Christ, it is that same act of faith. Like Abraham, like Rebecca, we are saying to the Lord, I trust you. I trust your promises. I believe that the end of your story is by far 
surpassing of anything that we could enjoy in this world. And that ultimate blessing that we look forward to, the end of the story. Is it the world put right? The end of the curse? Is it life and health restored? It is those things, but the blazing centre of God's blessing is something else. We're just going to finish with these words from verse 63. And look what it was for Rebecca. What was the great blessing for her? We read, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, and she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. She took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. You see, the great prize for Rebecca wasn't the jewellery and it wasn't the bracelets, it was Isaac himself. The greatest prize for us. It isn't just health restored and it isn't the world put right, it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And like Rebecca, we have left our old life and our old ways and one day we will set our eyes upon Christ and he will set his eyes upon us, eyes filled with delight and joy. And he will say to us, you are home. Now life begins. So the world is in flux, but the Lord is weaving out his purposes through it all. And the question for each of us is, will we go? Will we continue to be part of this story that the Lord is unfolding? Moment quiet, we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, what wonderful, wonderful words that we've thought about this morning. What a wonderful display of your power and your goodness, quietly bringing about your purposes and plans. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be like the servant, that we would be like Rebecca, that we would join in with your plans and purposes, responding with planning of ourselves, but also prayer, responding with faith, choosing Christ to follow him, Whatever the cost. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.